We interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Gregory Salmieri. Greg teaches philosophy at Rutgers University and Stevens Institute of Technology and is a fellow at the Anthem Foundation for Objectivist Scholarship and the co-secretary of the Ayn Rand Society, a professional group affiliated with the American Philosophical Association. Greg, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, at the heart of the debate over the welfare state is the issue of justice. And so I wanted to have you on to discuss what justice is, how it applies to the kinds of issues we discuss in this podcast, and how to make sense of ideas that are often bandied about in these debates, such as social justice. So let's start with a incredibly broad question, which is, what is justice? Well, a way to start on that is to think about what in general is meant by it that um, competing theories of justice could even agree on. And I think we could start by saying that justice is the virtue of an individual person or of an institution or of a whole social system, the, the virtue of those things that deals with how they treat other people, whether how one person treats other people around him or how an institution treats other institutions or members of that institution or how a society treats its members and also the people in, in other societies. And, um, and it's treating people in the right way, in the way that they deserve to be treated. But of course, different theorists will disagree about uh, in what way other people deserve to be treated what are the principles that govern this? Uh, what facts of human nature uh, give rise to these principles, give rise to the issue of deserving one kind of treatment versus another? And what structures or features of a person or an institution or a society cause it to treat people in the ways they deserve or in other, uh, in other ways? So there's a lot of room for different views within this broad outline. But again, the broad outline is that virtue or positive feature of a, a person or a society or an institution whereby it treats people in the way they deserve to be treated. It treats them rightly. So how would you uh, define at kind of a high level your view of justice? Uh, so here I, I come at this from an objectivist perspective, from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, and she stressed the fact that we need to uh, objectively evaluate everything. We need to evaluate everything and its impacts on us factually uh, in a way that's sensitive to the truth about them and rather than fooling ourselves. And that human beings, because human beings have the faculty of choice and it's choice that pr primarily shapes their uh, action and their impacts on one another, that human beings need to be uh, evaluated by moral standards, by the standards of right and wrong, good and bad, because of the fact that they choose their own actions rather than acting deterministically like machines or plants or animals. So human beings need to be evaluated on a moral basis. It's because of their good or bad choices and the fact that they have the ability to make good or bad choices, that they require a special type of evaluation, and then that we need to treat them 
always in accordance with the moral evaluations we make of them. And why? Why is why is it so important to be just? Well, Rand's an egoist, as am I, and that means that one should always act in the way that is best for oneself, that promotes one's survival and happiness. And a major source of values, a major source of things that can promote your own survival and happiness is other people. Other human beings are boons to us in many, many ways, but they can also be threats to us. They can also harm us. And the fundamental things that makes other people good for me or bad for me is whether they're good or bad people, whether they're moral or immoral people. Uh, among the things that make people good, among the virtues, are being rational, being productive, being honest, and there are others. And people who are like this will create physical values that I can trade with them for that will make my life better. They'll discover knowledge that I can learn from them that will enrich my life. They will be people that I can be friends with and admire and can trust and can have relationships that will enrich my life spiritually and me enrich theirs, uh, but only insofar as they have these virtues. If somebody is irrational and is acting on random urges, uh, who knows what they're going to do and what impact it's going to have on me, but probably not good. If someone is not productive, if they're not creating the values they need in order to live, then they're going to need to try to get those from me and they're not going to have anything to offer me in return for them. So they're going to steal from me or just beg from me and try to sap me dry. If they're dishonest, I can't trust anything they say and they're going to try to fake things to me and you know extort or steal values from me in different ways and they're going to make my life worse. So just as I need to judge the physical things that I deal with and not you know put all my weight on a a board or a plank that's unable to support it, I likewise need to judge the people I deal with. And I need to judge them on the basis of those facts about them that make them most able to be good or bad for me. And the fundamental determiners of whether human beings are good or bad for one another is the thing that fundamentally determines how human beings act. And that's their choices. And whether they choose to be good people or bad people. This whole way of thinking depends on quite a lot of moral philosophy uh, on the view that what's good in people benefits other people and what's bad in people hurts other people. So there are, you know, there's quite a lot of background to this and places where people might come on or get off board. But that's uh, an outline of how I think about this. Okay, so I want to turn now to the issue of um, politics and more broadly a social system. Uh, what makes a social system just or unjust? Well, I think what makes the social system just or unjust, in the same way as we said what makes an individual just or unjust, is that the social system treats people in the way that they deserve to be treated. But a social system isn't the kind of thing that can think or evaluate people in the way an individual human being can. So it doesn't have the virtue of justice in quite the way that I described it. However, it is something that's set up by human beings. And um, we can therefore judge it as a product of human choice. It's not like uh, an accident or an inherent fact of nature that societies are organized in the way that they are. And we can judge 
whether the rules of a society, the laws, and also just the customs of it are such that people within that society get what they deserve from one another and from the institutions and structures in that society or whether they don't. And that's something that's somewhat different from judging the individual members of the society and what they do. So we can think, um, think of a slave-owning society or of a, a fascist or a communist society. And it might be that though I in that society don't treat you who's in that society unjustly, I make all the choices that I make as well as I can on my best judgment of what you deserve from me and your character. The whole setup of the system is such that our interests are put into horrible conflict. I get certain things at your expense and you get certain things at my expense where we don't deserve to have these things uh, taken from us and given to the other. Um, and there the fault for that is not in my particular injustice or your particular injustice, but in that there's something unjust about the laws or the social order under which we're living. And you and I are responsible for that insofar as we endorse those laws and agree with them and don't fight them, but we're not responsible for the particular inequities in our favor or the other person's favor. For example, if you know, I got more out of uh, the public education system than you did and you got taxed more for it or vice versa. Um, so this is... Oh, sorry, oh, go ahead. Okay. So that's just why there's such a thing as a, a questioning of the justice or injustice of social institutions, how it's, it's not exactly the same thing as talking about a person being just or unjust. But I think I strayed a little bit from your question. The question was, uh, remind me of it. So it was what makes a social system just or unjust. And I think that gives the broad outlines of what it would mean to say a social system is just or unjust. Now, we just did an interview with Ankar Gatte on individual rights. And I think you and I agree that the, the, a just social system is one based on individual rights. So I don't think we need to go into great length here about exactly the nature of that system. But I wonder if you could at least say a little bit about why you think that a system based on individual rights, namely laissez-faire capitalism, is just. Yeah, well, if we're talking about a social system and the justice of the social system, we're not talking about, insofar as we're talking about justice, we're talking about the kinds of treatment that people deserve from one another. But we're not talking about specifically the treatment that you, Don Watkins, deserve from me, Gregory Salmieri. There's a whole lot of things you might deserve from me. You might deserve from me uh, uh, money that I borrowed from you. You might deserve credit for having written a good book that I enjoyed reading and, and learned some things from. You might enjoy deserve a, a bit of blame from a bad joke you once told about me that I was offended at. Or you, know, you might deserve many different things from me. But those are things you, one person, deserve from me, another person. When we're talking about a society, we're not talking about my one-on-one -on -one interactions with you, but we're talking about the interactions between you and the whole system that all of us are contributing to. And we're talking about, in particular, um, what decisions are made by whom. 
the kinds of spheres in which you and I operate. And there, the fundamental thing we deserve and need, because we have free will and need to act morally in order to survive and prosper, the fundamental thing we need from each other and owe to each other as members of a society that we need from the society and owe to the other people as members of the society is the freedom to act on our own judgment, to lead a moral kind of life. And that requires freedom because the fundamental uh, way that we lead a moral life is by acting on our own thinking. And that requires the liberty to take the actions we deem best. So what we fundamentally deserve from one another, not as just two guys, but as two members of the society, and what I deserve from you qua society member, is the freedom to lead my life, to make the decisions I need to chart the course of my life and to act on them. I think that that sets a good context to address my next question, which is judging economic outcomes or in uh, relationships as just or unjust. And let me give you the sort of case that will often be raised in this context. So you'll have a CEO whose company falters. Uh, he lays off a bunch of employees and maybe he's even fired, but he gets, you know, a million dollar paycheck. And so that's a, you know, voluntary decision. He didn't s literally steal it from anybody. Yet would we say that that's a just outcome? Well, it may or may not be. Um, if you can imagine employment contracts that are unjust, unjust contracts for the CEO, unjust contracts for the workers who in this situation get fired, uh, contracts that if we were there advising the person when they were going to accept the contract, uh, we would say, don't accept those terms. That's not fair to you. That's unjust. We could also imagine a situation in which the contracts are just, but they give people a certain amount of discretion. And when a person is exercising his discretion, say whether to fire a certain worker or whether to continue on in a job that he knows uh, he's not good enough to perform, uh, we would say to the person, it's unjust of you to make this decision. There are all kinds of situations uh, in which you'd have to look at them case by case. You can imagine there being injustice on somebody's part or even on the part of a whole business in certain kinds of cases where some people get promoted and some people get fired in the wake of good or bad results for the business. But I don't think we can say that it's unjust in the sense of being a product of an unjust society or unjust social order because if we're speaking at this level of, of the society and what's just for the society to do, what's just for the society to do and to allow and to be for the laws to support is the freedoms needed to take these kinds of actions, including the freedoms needed to judge whether other individuals and other businesses are acting justly or unjustly and to modify one's relationships with them accordingly. So for example, if we think that the CEO of, a, of the company has acted unjustly in firing uh, certain employees who he shouldn't have, or in letting himself get paid a bonus that we didn't think he deserved, that might cause us to 
modify our relationship with the company. We think the company is harmful and bad. We won't uh, buy its product or its stock. Or if we are stockholders, it might cause us to judge the CEO as unjust and to vote for his removal. But I don't think in any case it should cause us to judge the society as unjust and to uh, want to institute laws to prevent CEOs from behaving this way or boards from behaving this way. Um, to institute those laws would be to remove precisely the freedoms that all of us uh, need to make those kinds of decisions and to pursue justice in our personal dealings. And that would be unjust to everybody. Yeah, I just want to reiterate that point. So I think it's a, it's a difficult perspective to gain, but it's really clarifying so that there can be cases where you or I might look at a, a, a business decision, let's say, that we weren't directly involved in, um, like the CEO case, and think, yeah, that's enormously unjust. But it would not be just for the government to come and, quote, remedy that injustice by interfering with the voluntary decisions of the CEO and uh, the, the owners of the company. And it wouldn't be just for you or I to vote for the government to do that. Um, but it would be just for us to take private actions like boycotting the company or selling its stock or anything like that. I should add, though, that I think a lot of the kinds of claims we hear about individual companies being unjust in this way are, are exaggerations or are not true or are just smears of, of companies. There's a tremendous bias against big business uh, in our culture. So I don't want to let that go. But nevertheless, of course, it's possible for particular executives or particular companies to behave unjustly. It happens sometimes, and uh, it's bad when they do, and we should call them out. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And it, it is a loaded example, um, it, it, particularly in that a lot of things, I mean, moral judgment is really hard. So being it just is difficult. And I think this is something Ayn Rand stresses. And so even to take that, you know, that economic case of the CEO, if a, you know, company would have failed even worse, but for the efforts of a CEO, it, he might very well have, you know, deserved to get a, a, a big paycheck. Or Thomas Sowell will sometimes point out it could be in the interest of a company to pay him a big, you know, parachute so that he goes away quietly and they can quickly move on. So it's, it, you can't read two paragraphs on a blog post, I think, and reach an evaluation of whether any of these kinds of dealings were just or unjust. Yes. Also, uh, an aspect of justice that we all should be take great care to practice is um, recall that the idea that justice is judging people objectively. And there are all kinds of biases that can uh, lead us to judge people non-objectively. And one of the things we need to be sensitive to is what kind of biases there are, biases that we ourselves might have or biases in the reporting that might be being done that will bring certain things to our attention and other things not. You know, if you were somebody living uh, in the Jim Crow South or, you know, in the world of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which I think really dramatizes this excellently, um, you would likely have, and people today certainly do have, uh, biases against black people. And you'd be in a situation where the media that you were getting would present you uh, with information that would be biased against individual black people in certain situations because of this general racist bias. 
And so you would have to take care, uh, you know, if a murder was committed or a rape was committed and a black guy was nearby and everybody was uh, jumping to accuse him, you'd need to take care to know that this is the kind of situation in which it's difficult to judge objectively because fa the facts you're getting might be slanted and uh, your own emotions might run high and bias you in, in the wrong direction here, um, or rather bias you, which is wrong here. I think similarly, uh, there is an anti-business bias in America, and particularly anti-big business. And that bias affects most people in their feelings on this issue who haven't really thought it through and, and noticed this and internalized it, just like racism has this kind of impact on people's feelings. And it certainly affects the way things are described in the media. So if you just read a, a if I just read a headline, you know, CEO, um, you know, again, gives himself golden parachute and poor companies are uh, suffering. I read that kind poor uh, workers. I read that headline in the same spirit that I would read a headline in the Jim Crow South about um, white woman raped uh, black man, uh, most likely suspect. After all, he was there and looked at her funny. Now, um, in one way, we've been talking about the issue of social justice, that is the justice of the social system. But often social justice is given a, a different, it carries with it different connotations or there's different ideas. What is social justice in this more narrow sense? Well, it's, you know, I don't know the exact lineage of how the term developed into this present usage. The main figure here, though, is Rawls, who wrote in the 70s a, a very influential book, A Theory of Justice, where he, he developed a certain theory of justice and focused on the justice of societies. And his argument, um, you know, it would be better to get a Rawls scholar than me to go into the details of it. But the effect of the argument is that one ought to judge societies by the status of the worse off people in them, typically the poorest people, but you know, worst off in whatever respect is relevant. And we ought to judge measures that would change a society. And we ought to judge a society's institutions by their impact on the worst off people in them. And this is the, the perspective that people usually have in mind these days when they speak about social justice concerns. And from your perspective then, uh, and your account of justice, how would you, I mean, clearly there's a conflict between the idea of justice, a just society is one that respects people's freedom, and then there's a society where we're defining justice as um, helping the least off people, even if it means taking a bunch of money or restricting the freedom of people who aren't worse off. Well, the, I don't think there's a, a justification for um, siphoning off the least well-off people into a special category deserving of special consideration. Uh, there are reasons to... Often things that are bad about a society, uh, often in cases where people are being treated unjustly, those problems tend to compound at the bottom of the society because uh, people are held down or they're treated worse and then they get treated worse. And, you know, they, they often tend to collect 
uh, at the bottom. So there, there are definitely reasons when evaluating a society to uh, pay special attention to what people are, are treated especially bad, which people are especially badly off, and to think about what might be causing that. But those reasons are with respect to identifying possible symptoms of something. I don't think they're the standard of judgment. So I do think that, you know, as a kind of heuristic device, it is helpful uh, sometimes to look at, you know, how does this, how are the poor doing in this society? And I think in better societies, you'll see a lot of people moving out of poverty and um, you won't, uh, and you won't see this kind of stagnation of classes in poverty, whereas in worse societies, you will see that. But I don't think that's what, what, that is what makes them good or bad. Then the other it's just a sign of, of their goodness or badness. And the other thing I'd want to point out is that we should focus on what a society should do if it's just, is it should leave people free to rise by their virtue and fail by their vice. So it's not as though nobody should be badly off. It's that the, the, the virtue should be enabled to or allowed to succeed and vice to fail, and some people will fail. In fairness to the Rawlsians, um, it's not like they think virtue and vice don't matter at all, but they, um, and they do think, you know, in some cases, uh, if you can show that somebody's badly off because he did something wrong, you know, that, that would be a justifiable situation in which people were badly off. But they're not focused on that, and they're not focused on that because they don't think that it's the case that how we do in life is, is very much influenced by our choices. They, I don't think this is how they would describe it, but they see social forces and environmental forces generally rather than individual choice as the fundamental determining factor of how someone's life goes. And because of that, I think though they, they you know, they're not, uh, it's not as though they don't think there's such a thing as someone deserving something bad to happen to him. Uh, that's not a central part of, of their theory. Well, that leads to my next question, because um, if you look at, I mean, take Rawls himself, he's clear that, yes, yeah, a person you could say, um, it would deserve his fate if he was responsible for his bad choices. But luck is a, a huge part of how we end up. And you put it as social forces or other outside forces like that. And, and I mean, Rawls even goes so far as to say a person's character, you know, depends on who his parents were and how they raised him and so on. Mm -hmm. um, let me put it in more economic terms since it's such a broad issue. Uh, the idea that a person doesn't deserve what he's earned on a free market because so much of it was uh, the product of luck and therefore in order to give everybody equal opportunity you know we have to deprive people of what they gained by luck but that's not an injustice anyway since again they didn't deserve it what do you make of that sort of argument well the phrase product of luck in and I don't recall if, if Rawls uses that phrase or not, or any of the Rawlsian politicians, but it is a telling, it does capture something about this point of view. Because to be a product of something 
is not the same thing as to be a product of X is not the same thing as X is having had some causal role in it, right? So um, we don't say that, you know, an iPad is a product of the Big Bang or of the oceans, although the existence of those things obviously played causal roles in the existence of the iPad. We say it's a product of Apple and Apple made it in certain circumstances and out of certain material. And I think that's the way we should understand what we're a product of. If you think of us or our characters as a product of luck, you think that luck is the determining force that made us what we are. Whereas if you think of our characters as the product of our choices, then you think of our choices as the fundamental determining character that decided what we are. And in each case, you'll think, of course, there are other contributing factors, but you're focusing on which one is the essential one. And I think really what's behind the egalitarian movement, which is the, the, the you know, movement that Rawls is a part of and that's so big in contemporary politics today, is a view that, yeah, there are choices, but they're not a fundamental cause of everything, anything. The cause of success or failure is, is fundamentally not someone's choices. Now, this is a deep issue. It's, it's a, a philosophical issue that really needs to be thought through probably more than we can do in this kind of a call, even to broach it. Uh, it's something for a book. But I think it helps just to be aware that that's what's going on in this discussion. A question of what is the role of choice? Is it just one thing that happens, but something else really determines the course of your life? Or is, although of course there are other factors, choice the important one? And you can see in my own view, as I described it at the beginning, uh, influenced as it is and coming out of RAM, uh, this focus on choice. And you can see that that's precisely what is downgraded or demoted in rhetoric like Obama's, you didn't build that. And um, this is what I think that whole controversy is about. What's the role of choice? Now, what should we say about the role of luck, chance, fortune, particularly as it relates to the concept of deserving something? This brings me back to another point I made uh, at the beginning when I said theories of justice are going to, what they're going to try to explain is uh, what people deserve how we should treat people in order to treat them in the way they deserve to be treated. And what we need to think about is what does this concept of desert mean? What facts give rise to the concept of deserving something? And the way It would take sort of longer than I have to sort of prove this or look at the texts that cite it that, that do it. But I think that the arguments that you get against capitalism and against markets and the kind of egalitarian, as they're called, arguments work by saying something isn't deserved if there was an element of luck that was necessary for it to happen. So, for example, if I have uh, some money which I earned by doing a job, but I couldn't have gotten that job unless I had gotten an education and uh, luck intervened in making it possible for me to get that education, then I don't deserve it. 
In other words, for something to be deserved, it has to be choice all the way down at every level. Choice has to shape all of the inputs to it. But since there's nothing like that, uh, since choices only can operate in a context, in order to choose, you have to have a, things to choose between and certain abilities that let you identify the alternatives and pick one. Uh, on that view of deserving, I don't think there could be a distinction between deserving and not deserving. The whole concept of deserving arises in, uh, in a certain context. And I think if you respect that context, these kinds of arguments don't really get a bite. So, I mean, do I deserve the fact that I don't live in the Stone Age? I think clearly that question... You can't say I do deserve it. I did something to earn my having not being born into the Stone Age. That clearly doesn't make sense. It's not the kind of thing one could do something to earn or not earn. But the fact that I don't deserve my not having my having been born in the 20th century rather than the Stone Age doesn't mean that it's unjust or undeserved that I have it. It's just not the kind of thing that could be deserved or undeserved. It's not the kind of thing that dessert uh, language, the concept of dessert, applies to. And so we can't say, I think, and it's wrong to say, that the things that I've made with the opportunities that I've had, which opportunities I wouldn't have had if I were born in the Stone Age, are undeserved because my having been born now rather than then wasn't deserved. It's just... There's a, a kind of mistake about the understanding of dessert that's here. If you don't think it's a mistake, then at least recognize that there's an issue about what we understand as the context for the concept dessert. And that's something that needs to be debated about and that I don't think is debated when you get these kinds of arguments. It occurs to me to go back to this issue of whether or not free will is you know, a major defining aspect of an individual's life one objection is that you'll often hear is a statistical objection where they'll say for instance look at people in the you know bottom uh part of society statistically have very little likelihood of making it to the top whereas if it was really an issue of free will we would expect it to be you know you'd have an equivalent chance of ending up at the top whether you were born poor middle class or anything else uh do you have any thoughts on that sort of Method, methodology for thinking about the role of free will in life? Yeah, so I think the question, the, the, that kind of way of thinking is a little bit like saying, um, of course, technological achievement isn't a matter of free will and individual effort. After all, if you take somebody born in the Stone Age, somebody born in the Renaissance, somebody born in the Dark Ages, somebody born in 1710 and somebody born in 1950. And then you look at and you, you know, take large populations of people born at these times. And then you look at how much technology they have at the end of their lives. It's a, you know, a certainty that the person born later will have more technology or born in the 2000s will have more technology than all the other people. And of course, that's true. But that doesn't show that the the technological progress that was made wasn't achieved by individuals. It's just that each individual has to start from what resources they have available to them to start. And if you take uh, 
individuals born in the same circumstances, the same historical circumstances or the same financial circumstances, you'll find that they vary greatly in how much they've produced at the end of their lives. Some of them will be worse off. Some of them will be better. It's not a, we, we, to, to say that people can produce and better themselves isn't to say that we should expect them to be radically, radically different in how much they have at the end than at the beginning, uh, that they would have leapfrogged over everybody else. They might, progress is often in smaller steps, but that doesn't mean that it's not progress and that it's not earned. And of course, there are the exceptional cases of people who are born poor and end up very rich or born very rich and end up very poor. I think in a freer economy, those circumstances would be a little less exceptional than they are now, but they would be exceptional precisely because they're the very dramatic cases of people who did very, very well or very, very badly. Most people will do pretty well or pretty badly, which means they'll become a little bit more wealthy, a little bit more secure, or even a lot more secure, but not so much as to be, you know, uh, dramatically uh, ahead of the rest of, of other people who had more to begin with than they did. Now, what about that having more to begin with? You could say that that's undeserved. Well, it's not deserved in the sense of it's not something those people have earned, but it's not something that is unfair or wrong that they have either, just like it's not unfair or wrong that I was born in this century rather than a century later or a century earlier. It's just a fact. And it's not something that the society imposed on people. But that's really the crux of the issue. The crux of the issue is whether you see things like inheritance uh, and things like some people having more to start with and less to start with, whether you see things like that as impositions from society which therefore can be judged as just or unjust, or whether you see them as facts of nature that the society contends with. If you see them as impositions from, as, sorry, facts of nature, not impositions, not things that anybody did, then you're not going to judge them as unfair or unjust to the people who start off with less. You're just going to see it as, uh, as how things are. Well, there's one more component. It's whether you view it as a fact of nature or something imposed by society. That's one of the constituents that goes into this. And the other is what you view as the primary organ of achievement, the primary agent of achievement, of progress, of production. If you think of the primary agent of achievement, of progress and production, the primary thing that deals with reality as the society rather than the individual, then even if you see these facts that some people start with more or start with less as facts of nature, you're going to think of them as facts of nature that we all collectively have to deal with because it's us as a collective that is the primary thing that acts. Whereas if you view achievement and work and progress and in general living as fundamentally an activity that individuals do, often in cooperation with others, but nonetheless fundamentally as individuals, then you're going to see the fact that I was born with a lot, but not so much as a third person uh, and more than a first person, 
uh, as a fact that I have to deal with rather than as a fact that we have to deal with. And so you're not, if you think of it as a fact that I have to deal with it, you're not going to view that in terms of whether it's just or unjust. It just is. And what's just or unjust is then what I do about it. But if you view it as a social phenomenon, as a fact that the society has to deal with, but it's the society that fundamentally acts, then you're going to view it as the society that has inherited this amount of wealth, and it's unjust that it lets it go disproportionately to me. Well, that, um, that raises uh, the issue of, but don't we gain benefits from society? And so isn't it proper that we owe something back to society? And that really is the, you know, you didn't build that argument. It's the idea of you didn't build it because um, society gave you an education or it gave you roads or something. Now, you've addressed that from one perspective, that there's a wrong view of what it means to earn or deserve something built into that. But nevertheless, there seems to be a, a, another aspect in which there's a, a claim, at least, that society is giving you something and aren't you going to give something in return? Well, again, it's, of course we give things in return for what we get in all kinds of obvious ways. So I was educated, sure, but my parents paid for my education. Uh, they paid for it in taxes in part and in part uh, directly through, um, I, you know, I went to some private schools and some public. So they were paid. For, they paid for it, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. They would have given that money to me. They wanted to spend that money on me, and so uh, I would have inherited it. We could wonder about whether that's just, but they paid for it, and it's already paid for. It's not like society, some amorphous thing, has given me something and I haven't given it back. The teachers who educated me were paid. The roads that I drove on were made by people who were already paid. So there's, there's not a question of owing something back, I think. The, and that's, I think, a distraction. The, the fundamental, because on any way you view it, um, people are going to do things for one another, and they're going to get compensated for doing things for one another. And we could, what's to be debated is what the just and unjust ways for that to happen are. What's a just way for people to build roads and get compensated for building roads that other people will use? And what's an unjust way to do it? I think there are unjust features about the way it's done and just ones. But the question isn't, did I make things ec nihilo or did I get benefits from other people? But what is the nature of the interactions between people and the value of those interactions? And I think there are two fundamentally different views that you can have of it. The one view is that the, the unit of action, the thing that acts, the fundamental locus of action, the fundamental locus of having values and doing the work necessary to achieve them are individual human beings. Individual human beings with individual minds, individual values, and individual choices that they make to take the actions needed to achieve those values. If you think that, then you'll think, of course, these people work together, collaborate, cooperate, trade in all sorts of ways. And we could think about which ways are just and unjust for them to do it. But fundamentally, it's individual people doing things to achieve their values. 
if you think of it that way, I think the whole you didn't build that mindset just doesn't make sense. Of course I built it. And the fact that I had an education before I built it is just irrelevant. But what I think the way of individual, you didn't build that kind of thinking comes out of, and it makes sense if you think of it this way, is if you don't think that individual choices, actions, values, and judgments are the things that really do the work. You think of the individuals rather as fragments of what's primarily and fundamentally a social process. It's not individuals that build things together, but it's societies that build things, and individuals are just, in effect, like cells in the social organism. If you think that way, then the role of the individual is greatly diminished. And the, you think of what's responsible for the achievement as primarily the group. And so an individual who happens to be at what might seem like a privileged position, say the CEO of the company that built the thing, just it's by luck that he's in this role. It's not him that really made it happen. Even if it's his decisions and his skills that made it happen, it's just the fact that he has these decisions and skills and so forth is a product of the society. He's just a kind of conduit, a cog in the machine. So I think there really it comes down to different views of human nature that lead to different ways of thinking about deserving things that lead to different views of what kinds of social systems are just and unjust. We can call them the individualist view versus the collectivist view. And again, I think this comes down to the issue of free will. Because if we were ants and we operated by instinct, uh, I don't think there would be a clear way to say that one of these two perspectives was the right one and the other the wrong one. I think an argument can be made for ants or coral uh, reefs that you can look at it as the collaboration of the many individual organisms, or you could look at each individual organism not as a collaborator, but as a cog in a greater system, and the system is the thing that's really doing the causing. But if it's right that human beings have free will, and that free will is a fundamentally different way of acting than the kind of deterministic processes that make uh, atoms uh, and molecules and inanimate objects work. It's a way of acting that emerges out of these simpler ways of acting in certain phenomena, but it's different. It's not just the same thing as the way inanimate objects or other organisms act. Then in the case of human beings, unlike in the case of these other organisms, there is a clear difference between these two perspectives on the causation. Uh, and it's right that the causation takes place at the individual level. And when groups of people act, what we're witnessing is collaborations of people rather than uh, an action that is fundamentally an action of a larger whole of which the people are just fragments or parts or cells, cogs. So I think really this issue comes down to free will. Whether you believe in free will or not leads to different views about deserving things, different views about 
what the relationship between a person and a society is, and so to different views about what kinds of societies are just. Yeah, and I mean it's it's notable. I'm reading I'm reading a lot of the social justice and egalitarian literature right now, and often they're explicit on this point. I mean they'll explicitly attack free will as such. Not all of them, but um, it does speak to your point. I want to end on a broader question about the welfare state. Now we've talked a little bit about the injustice involved in seizing and redistributing somebody's wealth. Um, but you see this as part of a larger injustice with even greater harms than just depriving a person of money, right? Yeah, I don't really think that the issues with money are the fundamental ones. I mean, one way to bring this out is, on average, you're probably not... This isn't exactly true, but, but bear with it for the sake of a thought experiment. The, if you have a system where wealth is being redistributed, on average, the average person, so to speak, is neither a, a beneficiary nor a, a dupe of the system. Uh, some people, of course, are contributing a lot more than they're getting back financially. Some people are contributing a lot less. But the average person is putting in and getting out the same amount, minus what's lost in some kind of overhead. Uh, but, you know, and most people aren't radically on, different from the average, I think. So it's helpful to think about the effects of these, of, of these kinds of welfare schemes, of a welfare society, on the person who is average or more or less average in this respect, in the respect of how much money is taken from him and how much money is spent on his behalf. And I think the effect that it has on this person is that it gets in the way of him choosing how to spend his product in pursuit of his values. Uh, and you've given some examples of this in the past uh, on, in some of your writings, which I thought were very good. You talked about your different retirement preferences from your father because of your different personal values, that he wants to spend more time in retirement than you. Uh, and therefore, he, he in, if he had the freedom to do it, and you would structure your savings differently. But you don't have that freedom. You're forced to live on this one-size-fits-all model. You're forced to live a kind of life to spend your own product, your own resources that are being taken from you and then supposedly given back to you in a way that's not the way you judge best for yourself. And this is true in millions of other issues. I mean, a ton of the medical costs that people that, that, that are spent today are on, you know, in the last last month or few months of life. Some people might prefer to get less good medical care in the last few months of life, to die sooner, and yet to have a lot of money spent earlier in different ways. But again, we're not free to make those choices for ourselves on our own individual values. And that's the real evil of a welfare state that it's taking this, it's depriving us of this freedom, which is something that we need and deserve, the freedom to make our own choices about how to lead our lives. And this is why, incidentally, although I don't think they're right in this, um, th but noticing this kind of fact is why some people on the right and some libertarians and so forth favor a kind of, you know, they call it a negative income tax or a guaranteed basic income, a scheme where instead of 
um, having a whole panoply of welfare programs, you just get uh, everybody's income is leveled out, basically, or not let go below a certain minimum. Because they think on this kind of system, all we'd be redistributing is people's money, but we wouldn't be having an impact on their life choices like this. And these life choice uh, impacts are destructive to people. But it's hard to say whether that would be a little bit better in some respects than the current system. I don't really think it would. But it, it does the same thing because the reasons that some people have more money than others are also the result of people's choices, not exclusively, but to a pretty significant extent. I mean, I faced choices, and I know you did too, about what career to go into. And uh, I had to weigh, you know, do I want to have more money or less money versus what other values I have? And the, uh, a, a scheme, even a scheme that would give me the same, you know, that would leave me equal in the amount of money I had at the end, um, is thwarting my ability to make those kinds of choices, to choose to have a less lucrative career or a more lucrative career in exchange for other values, because it's not letting me experience the consequences of those choices, and so not letting me really choose those different lives. It's kind of balancing out the life choices available to me towards a kind of mean or average, which mean or average might not be the kind of life I want. It's doing the same thing that's being done when the government uh, forcibly takes over our retirement spending. It's just doing it with our general life planning. In general, decisions made about money and, and where, where force is introduced and people are coerced with respect to money, how much money they have, it's not ultimately about the money. Money is the instrument for living your life. It's an instrument for securing values. And we decide how much we want to work to get how much money in what fields and what we want to do with it. So what we want to do with that money. So whenever our financial lives are compromised in this way, our whole lives are compromised. Our ability to decide what we want out of life and to achieve it is compromised. And that's what this is really about. And I don't think there's anything that can justify that. But my thinking that, my having that view on this political issue, depends on my positions on a whole lot of issues about morality and human nature. And those issues are too often, uh, by people on all sides of this debate, just not brought up. Ultimately, it depends on a view of free will that leads to a view about the nature of production and achievement and the nature of having and, and pursuing values. So let me let me leave it at that. My guest today has been Gregory Salmieri. Greg, thank you again for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thank you for having me. We covered a lot of ground in this interview, but here's what I would stress. Human life requires thought and effort, and the people who exercise that thought and effort earn what they get. The individual who thinks and produces deserves the values he creates. A just system, then, is one that recognizes and protects that fact. And this is why Ayn Rand said, and why I agree with her, that capitalism is a just system. 
the essence of the system is to recognize that values have to be created and that they belong to the creator. And further, that those values are created by the individual. And therefore, we have to have a system that recognizes and protects the right of the individual to engage in that action and to use what he achieves for the betterment and furtherment of his own life. Now, the egalitarians and the supporters of the welfare state, really what it comes down to is that they don't like that. They don't like the fact that reality requires thought and effort. They think it's unfair. Reality shouldn't demand that we have to exercise thought and effort in order to have the things we need. Well, they can stamp their foot at reality, but of course that doesn't cause nature to provide us with what we need. And so their solution is very simple, which is we're just going to take from those who do think and produce and give to those who don't. Now on its face, that is a horrible injustice. And in order then to support the program, you get two kinds of arguments. One is to deny that values are the result of thinking and producing. And so, for instance, the whole you didn't build that argument, the whole idea that um, what you get is the result of luck or chance or exploitation, all of these are aimed to say you didn't really earn the values that you have through thought and effort. And therefore, it's fine if society takes them and redistributes them. And then on the other side, it's to say that, no, morally, you don't deserve what you earn. You don't morally deserve what you create. You morally deserve to have your needs fulfilled. And therefore, it's morally right to sacrifice those who've achieved something to those who haven't. That's, and so what we're going to do is we're going to come up with a label for that, and we're just going to call that social justice or redistributive or distributive justice, rather. But what it really is is anti-justice. Anti-justice is depriving the creator of his creation, depriving the individual who's created values of the values that he's created. And that, in the end, is the purpose of the welfare state, to carry out that injustice. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. And to learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. For the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debt draft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.